You know, considering the studies have found American evangelicals favor gun ownership over gun bans, why do you think this has become such an, an ingrained stance among so-called Bible-believing people? Yeah, this is really complicated. I think that, you know, largely our identity as Americans um, has really become sort of our our primary identity for for a lot of people, a lot of Christians. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendorf, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Trump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now... On to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Taylor Schumann. She is a writer and activist whose writing has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, and Phantom. She has a new book out, uh, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. Taylor, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, uh, how are things in, in Charleston, South Carolina today? They are good. We're finally getting a little bit of fall here. It's not quite as hot, so that's always nice um, to have a reprieve from the humidity. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's really good. Charleston is such a fascinating place. Obviously, there's a, a lot of history there, but one thing can be said is I don't think you ever get used to the amount of mule crap that's all over the streets there from from the tourists. <laughs> so. And this and the smell. Yeah. <laughs> smells quite quite terrible. Yeah. Hold on. Let me be clear that I said mule crap from the tourists. What I meant by that for those that have been in Charleston is there's this huge like um, touristy thing to do in which you get on a, a mule cart and ride around town and get a like a historical 
survey, I guess, if you will, or tour of the city. And then all throughout the, you know, the streets, um, they're supposed to clean it up, but they really don't. There's, there's just mule droppings everywhere. So. Yeah, it's not one of our more um, shining attractions of Charleston. <laughs> the good news is there is a constant breeze from from the water, so it should take you know all that away. But it's it is a pretty remarkable place to live. So, but you're not originally from Charleston; you're from Virginia. Yes, both my husband and I are from Southwest Virginia. Um, yeah, I'm from a little town called Salem. Um, and we both went to Virginia Tech for college. Um, yeah, so we we love Virginia. So, um, you know, so much of your story um, is wrapped up into this book that uh, that I want to get to. Um, and the book is called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. And this is a personal story of your um, terrifying and life-changing experience as a shooting survivor. Um, on April the 12th, 2013, uh, a lone gunman opened fire in the New River Community College in Christianburg, Virginia, and you were serving as an administrative assistant at the college. It, up, up until this horrifying moment, what had been your general thoughts about guns and gun violence and mass shootings? Um, yeah, so the area I grew up in um, guns were like a pretty common thing. A lot of people have guns, use them for hunting, um, have them for self-defense as a hobby, um, all those kinds of things. So guns, um, as a concept were not, um, unfamiliar to me. And, um, I definitely sort of fell in line with the conservative politics, um, where, um, you know, you really value the second amendment. Um, it's your right to have guns. Um, I wasn't particularly anti-gun control. I just didn't really care so much about it. I didn't really see the need for it. Um, you know, I, I grew up about 30 minutes away from Virginia Tech, and I was in um, high school when that shooting happened there and, um, you know, knew some people that were there. But overall, um, you know, my life just wasn't super affected by gun violence. Um, I didn't have to think about it um, besides when it was, um, you know, on the news or, I mean, a, a shooting had happened, um, and then I could kind of put it out of, out of my mind and go on about my day. Um, and yeah, so I just, you know, it was one of those things out of sight, out of mind. It didn't affect me, so I didn't really have to think about it. You know, trauma has an, an intriguing um, cognitive and psychological and physiological effect on, on our bodies. And, and you obviously write about your spiritual journey before, during, and after this event. Talk to us about the, the complexity of specifically your spiritual journey through this trauma. Yeah, I, um, you know, one of the first things I had the opportunity to do in the hospital was speak to a chaplain, um, which is in the moment was very comforting, but also felt um, sort of daunting because, you know, I had a lot of questions for, for God. Um, you know, I, I lived a relatively easy life until that point. And, you know, I, I like to say that the God I knew was sort of just the God of, um, of good times and comfort. Um, I didn't have to know him, um, sort of in moments of desperation and, and intense suffering. And, and so that was a God that I had to get to know a little bit after what happened to me. And, um, you know, through that journey of really seeking him, sort of in the darkest moments of my life when really I had nothing left and nowhere to turn and no one who understood. 
um, you know, I, I really began to see the truth in and, and really experience, you know, the scriptures that talk about how God is near to the brokenhearted and binds up our wounds and, um, you know, counts our, our tears in a bottle and, and those sorts of, of truths that I hadn't had the opportunity to full experience for myself. And um, I think now I know and understand God more fully than I did before, because I have walked through those, those hard places. Um, and he has been faithful to see me through them, um, and, and never left me alone. And that is not to say that I haven't had many questions for him or many days where, um, you know, I was angry and, um, and sad and felt sort of left behind or unseen or forgotten. Um, but still he was with me through all those questions. He's big enough to handle those questions and, um, to provide people in my life to walk with me and, and help me see that, um, that he's always been with me. And yeah, overall, I'm, I, you know, I'm really thankful for what this experience has done for my relationship with God and, and how I know him and, and see him and experience him in my daily life. I wonder, you know, uh, what are some of the theological hurdles that you had to work through? You know, I think about when trauma happens, uh, people that don't experience it have a tendency to, um, well, I'll just say they say stupid things and, yeah. uh, and really dumb and um, unfounded theological statements that, that really shape a lot of people's perspective about experiencing loss and trauma you know it's like yeah you know the things like god had a plan for it or god's hand mm -hmm. was involved in this and, and then you start to ask the questions well you know what if you had experienced loss or what if you had died does that mean that god's hand wasn't involved in you know so what were some of the the theological hurdles that you had to overcome in experiencing this trauma yeah you know it's so interesting because really and i think any believer who's walked like through something similar, something traumatic that I have probably has come to the same realization, which is that these theological hurdles that, you know, we're talking about, most of them exist because, um, they're like taken out of context and they're not actually like theological truths or biblical truths. Um, so, you know, things like you said, people say everything happens for a reason, or, you know, my, my particular favorite, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle, which is not in the Bible anywhere. That's not what that verse is talking about. And, um, and so all those things kind of do is like, make you feel really bad about yourself because, you know, people said that to me a lot. Well, God, you know, won't give you anything you can't handle. And I think be thinking, well, I absolutely cannot handle this. And I think he has given me more than I can handle. Um, and, you know, trying to search out what that means, like, what are people saying? And are these things true? Are these things that, that God thinks, um, and, and walking through those things. Um, and so I really had to like, kind of dig into a lot of these things that I had heard and believed and probably said to other people, like when they were going through really hard things and realize, oh, none of these things are actually true. Like, that's not what these scriptures mean. Maybe they're taking out of context. Um, and, you know, also maybe they're just a little bit minimizing. I think that 
a lot of Christians are really good at sharing scriptures, especially ones like that. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like Jeremiah 29, 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you plans to give you hope in a future or, um, you know, in Romans, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. We're really good at kind of quoting those scriptures to people in times of, um, grief or, or sorrow. Um, and they're really kind of easy cop out of like actually sitting with someone in their hurt and their grief and saying, wow, this is so awful what you're going through. And it is really hard and God is with you in it because there's so many other great scriptures about, um, you know, how God is with those who are hurting, um, and how, you know, we as fellow Christians and and neighbors can love them and, and show them the love of God. And I wish we would maybe go to those a little bit more. Um, but we're just not super comfortable with, um, you know, lament and grief. That's not something we as a culture have, kind of chosen to understand or or place value in. And so I think a lot of these things kind of come out because either we don't understand scripture or we just don't really want to get into um, the hard stuff with people. And yeah, I definitely had to kind of, kind of walk through that and figure out um, what I was going to believe, what, what kind of truth I was going to surround myself with. Um, And, you know, I have to say like the the good stuff, the good theological truths, what they actually are and what they actually mean is so much better um, than kind of what we've misconstrued them to be. Yeah, and, and a helpful contextual reminder for those that want to quote Jeremiah 29 11, um, those words were spoken to a people who had just experienced the unconceivable trauma of have, yes. being ripped from their homes and taken to a foreign land. And it was not, oh, you know, in a couple of days, in a couple of weeks, it was, you know, you know, in a generation from now, after you've yeah, experienced yeah. this trauma, um, I do have plans for you. So, you know, that's always helpful to know the, the context yes. of, of those things. <laughs> yeah. um, you wrote, most painful of all the realizations that those who turned away, who remained silent, were the ones I most expected to see on the front lines, leaning into my pain joining me to call out for healing, for justice, and for reform. Take us a little deeper there. Yeah, you know, I, once I really started kind of understanding gun violence and what had happened to me and what was happening to um, thousands of other people um, in the United States, I realized how um, much hurt there is there, how much trauma, how much grief, how much suffering Um, and I'm thinking, well, I've, I've grown up as a Christian, um, you know, I've gone to church my whole life. Um, you know, this is sort of a call to Christians is to, you know, be in their community, be with people who are hurting, be the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, you know, I had been very involved in, you know, the pro-life movement, um, you know, wanting to really, um, stop abortion, save lives, um, you know, kind of that pro-life, the pro-life movement. And this seemed to fit so well, you know, why aren't Christians out here, um, you know, protesting for, for gun laws to, to save lives from gun violence. This is, you know, there's a lot of suffering here. This is, this is just as terrible. We're losing all these lives. Um, and I didn't see that. And, um, you know, of course there are, there are 
there are people, there are Christian groups kind of on the ground doing the work, um, but it, it's nowhere near something like, you know, um, the anti-abortion movement is. Um, and it was hurtful because I was sitting there sort of living my life, experiencing all this, all this terribleness, um, you know, daily seeing the effects of gun violence on my life, my family's life. Um, and there was, there was no one there. They didn't really care to see it. They didn't really care to talk about it. And then when I began speaking out about it, what I actually got was a lot of criticism, a lot of negativity, a lot of silence, um, a lot of lost friendships, um, people who didn't really want anything to do with it at all. And that was really hurtful because, you know, I just wanted to sort of scream, like, do you not see this? Do you not see what I'm going through, what all these other people are going through? Um, how are we ignoring this when, when there's so much work that we could be doing here um, and really kind of taking up a, a place at the front lines, like I said, of saying, you know, we're Christians, we love the Lord and we love people and, and we don't want to see this, this suffering continue. Um, and so it was really hard to kind of dive into that and ask questions and, and find the answers about why we're not seeing that and why there's a lot of resistance to it. So I heard a, a term recently um, that really uh, hit me in my core. Uh, they, they were talking about the, the proximity of pain. And mm. the person was talking about just how much Jesus placed himself close in the proximity of pain of others uh, in order for them to feel his compassion and experience transformation. And, and really just, just open the Gospel of Luke chapter seven, eight, uh, alone, and you'll have endless examples of this. Mm. Um, you know, but for many people, they don't want to be close to hurt, uh, to pain, mm. to suffering, to the mess of other peoples that have experienced trauma. Yeah. What has your experience taught you about why uh, the proximity to pain is so important, not only for, for victims, but also for those who journey with them? Wow. Yeah, that's a, this is a really important topic. Um, and I, I think really what it comes down to is that, you know, we, as people in the world, as, as believers and, and those who aren't believers, you know, we, we belong to each other. We, you know, we are supposed to be in community with one another. Um, you know, all throughout the Bible, you know, we see examples about the importance of, of community and fellowship. Um, and, and part of being in true community and true fellowship is, is being there for one another when things are not going so well. And when someone is going through something really hard, um, and you know, the truth of, of sort of how different we all are and the beauty of, of diversity, um, is that we don't all go through the same things. We all have very different experiences and, um, we have to be willing to listen to each other, to, um, hear someone's story to ask questions, to, to have them explain to us what it's been like. And for us to do what we can to put ourselves in their shoes and try to carry some of that burden with them of their experience. Um, you know, like I said before, I had not experienced gun violence before this, so I didn't really have to think about it. Um, and similarly, I am, you know, a white middle-class woman. I have not had to experience things like racism. I have not experienced poverty. Um, 
you know, I have not had to be a refugee fleeing a dangerous country, leaving all my belongings behind. Um, I haven't experienced a lot of things. And so what I feel like my duty is to my neighbors and to people around me is to listen to their stories and, and do my best to, to see them and to understand so that I can, um, fulfill my calling to, to shoulder their burdens with them and to care about the things and to see the things that God cares about and, and let my heart be softened to care about those things. You know, I need people who haven't experienced gun violence personally to care about gun violence so we can do something about it. Um, you know, people who have experienced racism need other people who have not to care about racism so that we can all work together um, to end the hatred, to end discrimination, all these things. You know, if, if we solely counted on people who experience the same things as we do to, to actually do something about them, we would not get very far and we would not do a good job of caring for, for each other. Um, and so that the idea of sitting with people in their pain and being willing to be uncomfortable um, with, with that um, is, is to love our neighbor. It's to care about them and to see them um, and, and sharing that with them. And I don't think we can have true community and true fellowship uh, without doing those things. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Louisville's Kentucky's annual Festival of Faith will be held November 18th to the 20th. BSK will play a key role in the conference. As a sponsor, and Dr. Lewis Brogdon, Executive Director of BSK's Institute for Black Church Studies, will lead a session entitled Black Faith Encounter with Black Trauma, Pain, and Nihilism on Friday, November the 19th at 10 a.m. Join us for this event via live stream by visiting festivaloffaiths.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. There's a fascinating section of the book in which you describe you know, what it was like um, with this trauma years later. You described the, the chronic pain, the response to backfiring car engines, the, the worry of leftover bullet fragments ravaging your body, um, the pain of mourning with others who have also had similar experiences. You know, while, while many who journey with us through trauma eventually move on for those that actually lived through it this is a, a daily experience so what have been some of the most helpful ways that you have coped with this trauma um 
definitely therapy. Um, you know, I, I've pretty much consistently seen um, a therapist or a psychologist since since it happened to me. Um, different kinds, people who specialize in different things, because you know, as you kind of walk through something like this, you need different things, um, and so it's always good to to have someone to talk to. Um, I have tried to. Um, really keep solid friendships with, with people close to me, people who were with me then, um, that know what I went through and that can still be here for me years later, um, when I need support. And, and so, you know, whenever there are shootings in the news, I hear from my friends, are you okay? I know this must be hard for you. Can I do anything? Um, or a simple, I'm thinking of you, um, to let me know that, you know, I'm not alone. And even though they're experiencing what I am, like they're thinking of me and remembering me and acknowledging, um, that's tough. Um, and you know, another thing is trying to form relationships with people who have experienced gun violence, um, kind of being in, in support groups with them. Um, a big thing that I've found really rewarding for me and healing is to, um, be there to offer support for people who um, have experienced gun violence um, since I have, because, you know, I was like desperately searching for someone who could understand what I had gone through um, that I could talk to about it because, you know, I had, I was so fortunate to have a wonderful support system, caring family, um, loving friends, a wonderful fiance, now husband, um, but the truth was that none of those people had been through what I had. And so there was a limit to what they could understand, what they could talk to me about and, and what I felt comfortable sharing. Um, so finding ways to offer support to people who um, have experienced gun violence has been, been really rewarding for me um, and kind of learning what, um, what triggers me, what kind of brings back those bad memories um, and, and learning ways to care for myself, ways to, um, talk to God about it, to ground myself in my faith, um, and, and find support from, from people, fellow believers. Um, those things have been really invaluable and yet there are so really hard days where I find it really hard to cope at all. And I think that's just the path of, of trauma and grief. It is not linear. There are ups and downs and, and times where you feel like you're going backwards a little bit, um, and you're not, you know, that's just, that's the human experience. That's, that's how it goes. And doesn't mean I'm failing. Doesn't mean you're failing. If, if you're going through something similar, it's just, that's the path we're on. And, um, and thankfully God is still with us and he is, is faithful. Um, you know, I talked recently to a group of people about, um, you know, the story of, of Ebenezer's in the Bible. And that's been something that I've really tried to, to cling to is this idea of, you know, these stones of remembrance, um, reminding myself of God's faithfulness, these places in my story where, um, there's just nothing else to believe except God was there and, and saved me and, and has sustained me and, and seeing those things in my life and, you know, remembering sort of, you know, till now God has helped us, um, as it says, and, and that even when I'm really hurting and feeling in a really dark place, um, you know, God has helped me until now. And, um, there's nothing that leads me to believe he won't be from here on out. And so, yeah, those are the things that I think really sustain me now.
you wrote as humans, even though we have a natural instinct to protect ourselves, our posture towards others as believers in Christ should be one of love and generosity, even towards people who want to harm us. Theologically, peace is a remarkable attribute. You know, in reality, the fear or complexity of a very uh, violent world leads people to own guns to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the right way of, of Jesus followers? Oh, this is a loaded question, Andy. <laughs> um, and, you know, people have different ideas of, of how this kind of plays out in the real world. That's a criticism I get a lot. It's like, well, that sounds really nice. Like to have a posture of love and humility and um, service to others. Um, you know, that sounds great. But in the real world, we have like real problems and, and I totally get that. And I, I, you know, probably better than a lot of people understand the fear of the world and and how that can um, change our hearts and change our posture towards others. Um, I really do get that. And I have a lot of empathy and a lot of understanding for that position. And yet I firmly believe that God has called us to love and serve our neighbor and pray for our enemies and love our enemies because we are all made in the image of God and we are all image bearers of, of God. Um, and so we can, you know, people can take that as they will and interpret how they will. But for me, um, you know, it means that I have to ask a lot of hard questions, about what it means to own a gun, what it means to maybe use that gun in, in self-defense, what that would look like, um, you know, the consequences of that action. Um, you know, when I talk to people about sort of the, the idea of, of self-defensive gun use, um, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, if someone's trying to hurt me or my family, of course, I'm gonna use my gun and kill them. They're, you know, a criminal, Um, they meant harm. I have no problem doing that. And my response is always, you know, I, in our society, that's a, that's a valid opinion. You know, we have laws of, of self-defense. Like it's a, you know, one of the biggest reasons to own a gun is, is for maybe this, um, potential to need it, to use it for self-defense. My thing is that, it shouldn't be such an easy decision. If we are um, believers and, and followers of God, then we believe that everyone is made in the image of God and that God loves everyone. And we need to be um, asking, okay, if you're willing to use a gun in self-defense, you need to understand that that is taking a life. And that is, um, there are consequences for that action. It is not only a good action. Um, so really what I'm trying to do is, is just to get people to think more thoughtfully about some of the ideas they might have about, about guns, about gun use, um, whether they see that as, um, a good thing or a bad thing is to just be a little more thoughtful about it. Ask more hard questions than, than maybe what we have, have asked of ourselves before, especially for people who have grown up around guns and it's always been part of their life, they may not have ever actually thought about the fact that using it in self-defense might, um, is actually killing a person. Um, a lot of times that's sort of a secondary thought that they might have. And so I think if we are, um, you know, believers, we, we really need to 
be open to asking ourselves what that means and let that shape our choices and influence our decisions about how we live in the world um, and sort of think through that first as opposed to saying, well, this is my right as an American first. I think those things have have kind of switched in, in our priorities for a lot of people. You know, considering the studies have found American evangelicals favor gun ownership over gun bans. Why do you think this has become such an an ingrained stance among so-called Bible-believing people? Yeah, this is really complicated. I think that, you know, largely our identity as Americans um, has really become sort of our our primary identity for, for a lot of people, a lot of Christians. Um, you know, I think in recent years we've, you know, we hear the term Christian nationalism a lot. And I think that sort of plays into this, this, um, you know, idea that, um, you know, America is, you know, like a country that God has blessed and, um, and given to us and our rights as Americans, you know, this idea of, of freedom, it's a free country. Um, you know, that's a, that's a really high priority. That's something that we really value a lot. And it's really easy um, to think of ourselves as Americans first, as opposed to Christians first. And when we do that, of course, um, our rights as Americans um, would feel incredibly valuable to us. Um, and so I think it's easy to say, well, I've been given this right as an American to own a gun, to use it how, um, how the law says that I'm able to, um, and just sort of like cling to that, go with that without really maybe evaluating what that means for yourself and evaluating what it means for others. Because the second part of this, I think, is that we are a very individualistic society, um, so even Christians in America, like we, you know, we really value independence. We value, um, you know, being self-sufficient um, and we're not great at thinking about ourselves as part of a community. We're not great at seeing how our, our decisions affect others. I think this has become very prominent during the pandemic, COVID times, really understanding that the choices we make are not just about us. They do affect other people. And that can be really hard for us to see when we value these freedoms so much. We, you know, it's not often that you are given a freedom and think, well, maybe I, I won't use that. You know, when we're offered something, you know, we tend to really just want it and, and want to use it and exercise that, um, without sort of thinking about, how that might fall in line with our faith, what our faith asks of us, um, and what our relationship to our neighbors asks of us as well. Um, you know, I could talk about this all day long, but yeah, I, I think really our priorities have, have gotten a little switched. And, and I think we need to ask, are we thinking of ourselves as an American first or as a follower of Jesus first? Um, because one of those identities, um, you know, has, has very different mandate for how we live our lives than the other. You know, 
when I think about the culture of my upbringing, this was the era of big 80s action movies, um, you know, coming out of the area era of, of films like uh, Dirty Harry. And, you know, as kids, we pretended yeah. to be G.I. Joes and cops and robbers. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, we use the terminology cowboys and Indians. And, and this was just a, a snapshot uh, of one moment and culture. And yet it is one that has saturated the glorification of the gun. You know, in, in what ways do we maybe fail to recognize the glorification of gun, gun violence um, and how it's influenced so many people's perspective of gun ownership? Yeah, you know, I, th I think um, we can talk about things like movies and um, video games and, and even, you know, war, sort of the culture of, of war that has existed. Um, and I think one thing really that has influenced this above a lot else is sort of the idea of the good guy with the gun, um, you know, uh, the hero, this someone who will come in and save the day when, um, you know, the bad guy, someone is trying to harm someone else or do something evil. Um, you know, even in all those movies and, um, you know, we, we seek out the hero. We love to see the good guy come in and, and save the day. Um, and, so that has really pervaded our culture, um, especially with gun owners is that, well, I should have a gun because I might need to save the day sometime. Maybe I could be the person to step in and, and stop, be the good guy with the gun to stop the bad guy with the gun. Um, and, you know, a lot of this came from a study that was done, um, which has now been debunked that, um, basically said, you know, there was these astronomical rates of self-defensive gun use, uh, which it was then proved to be false. It was statistically impossible for, for there to be that many cases of it. Um, but, you know, the damage was kind of done. This, this idea that, um, you know, you have to be prepared. You have to have a gun so you can stop a crime or stop your family from being harmed. It had really already seeped out and become something where instead of thinking, well, I might need to use a gun in self-defensive gun use. So I, I maybe should have a gun to be, pre be prepared, evolved into, well, I have to have a gun because someday I will have to use it. You know, it really became um, sort of like an impending thing that would happen, not something that might happen. And, and that really, I think, influenced culture, um, especially with, you know, the, the glorification of, of that idea. Um, when in reality, we just don't see that. Um, there aren't that many cases where, um, you know, the good guy with the gun stops the bad guy with the gun. And in a lot of cases we see it, it happen in a town near where I used to live where, um, you know, innocent people are harmed, um, you know, all these things. And, and I could get into that um, pretty deep, but yeah, we definitely live in a culture where, where that is really revered. Um, and, you know, like you were saying as kids, you know, you, you kind of grow up under those, that thinking and, and you see the movies and you play the games and um, yeah, it's, it sort of becomes ingrained in us at a young age and, and really affects how we grow up, how we see our, our rights, our responsibilities and, and what we believe. And it can be hard to think that maybe that isn't quite true. Maybe there's another way to, to believe. In the book, you address the common arguments against gun reform. Um, which of these makes you laugh the most? 
Oh gosh. Um, I think probably, you know, and it's really probably the most common one is that, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Um, because sure, like, yeah, a gun, you know, I would hear all the time, well, a gun, did the gun grow legs and get up and walk and kill someone on its own? Well, of course not. Like, that's absurd. Um, but people are killing people with guns. Um, and so, of course, the gun did not grow legs and get up and walk itself and kill someone. But someone who did want to commit an act of harm had access to a gun and used that gun to harm someone. So we can talk all day long about, you know, the evil in the world and how that influences people to, to do harm. Um, but we also have to talk about how they're doing it, their access to guns, how we make it easier for those people um, to, to do that. You know, we just had a numbers come out about, um, you know, crime rate in 2020, the, the homicide rate. Um, it's through the roof and gun homicides were up um, you know, murder in general was up a lot and, you know, 70% of it was with, with firearms. So yeah, we can talk about mental health. We can talk about all those things, but we also have to talk about the gun. And I think it's, it's really a disingenuous argument to act like the gun doesn't play a part at all. Um, I just think it's, it's not a, it's not a genuine thing to add to a conversation. Which, uh, which of these do you still find most difficult to argue against? Hmm. Let me think. I think probably the, um, probably the idea of, of that, you know, people will need to use a gun in self-defense. Um, because people want to feel safe. And for a lot of people having a gun in their possession makes them feel safe. Um, we live in a scary world. I know that very well. Um, and I can't tell people that they don't live in a scary world because we actually do. And it, it can feel very scary. And so it's, it's hard to tell someone that what they feel might not actually be in line with, with what the statistics say or with what the numbers say. You know, I think we can all see that it's really hard to argue against feelings with facts um, because those feelings are strong and those feelings of want to be, wanting to be safe are strong, wanting to protect our family. Um, those things are really valid. And so for me, you know, I can talk about the numbers all day long and I can give examples but if someone's desire is really just to feel safe and they feel like they have found a way to do that, that's really hard to argue against. Legislatively, um, this is a complicated rat's nest of special interest. Um, in other countries, when, when a single incident of a mass shooting took place, uh, the country rallied behind gun control reform. You know, one example is the shooting in Port Arthur, Australia in, in 96, in which mm -hmm. assault weapons were, were banned afterwards. And, and then they went nearly 20 years without another mass shooting. So yeah. what makes American legislative process so difficult for 
smart gun reform. Yeah, I don't, I think that, you know, Americans in general have very strong opinions about guns. Um, that affects the way we lobby our government, the way special interest groups lobby their government. Um, and so I think that, and, and money and how money is involved in that. And so I don't think we can talk about this without talking about um, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, because, um, you know, we can go back decades and see how the NRA has become more powerful and swayed um, our leaders, our government more, um, because they give a lot of money. They help people get elected and um, people like to keep their jobs and they don't want to go against um, people who are, are supporting them and getting them elected and getting them those jobs. And, you know, we even see people who um, are Republicans who are supported by the NRA say things about wanting um, maybe more um, gun legislation, more gun control. Um, but then when it comes to the time to vote for those things, well, I don't think this is the way we should do it. Um, and so I think we can we can trace the money back. And, and government works differently here than it does in a lot of other places. Um, and so, you know, I don't know everything about it, but really, I think we, we really are at sort of a an impasse, a stalemate in a lot of these arguments because there's just so much money involved. Um, and, you know, I, we do really live in a very polarized time now not that it, it hasn't always been that way um but it's really hard to kind of make progress now i mean it's, it's hard to make progress now with anything we can see that in our government uh right now um but yeah we we have a lot of special interest groups that that are doing the work raising the money and and have a lot of influence and um you know i, I wish that weren't so especially because when we look at the numbers you know um, over 90% of Americans support universal background checks. Um, and a majority of Americans support things like red flag laws. Um, but when it comes to our government leaders, they're not voting for those things. They don't support those things. And so they're not really reflecting what their constituents want. Um, why is that? Why is that? We, we have to kind of ask those questions and, and see how we can um, maybe reform some of the way things are done. Um, yeah, it's, it's really complicated and really frustrating. So what do you, I guess, let me ask this, who do you hope reads this book and what do you desire for them to take away from it? Um, you know, I would love anyone, anyone to read the book, but especially people who, um, maybe have always believed um, in, in gun rights, always, you know, never really supported gun control, never really saw a need for it or, or understood why it might work, um, but who are seeing all these shootings in the news, maybe hearing about how gun violence is affecting their local community and just kind of feeling something in their soul saying, this doesn't make sense to me anymore. Um, someone who wants to dig into it, wants to ask questions and just feels a little afraid because let's face it, like changing your mind on big things, especially right now, isn't really something we value. In fact, we sort of discourage it. Um, we, you know, I write about this a little in the book. We 
call people flip floppers and we say they're inconsistent and um, that they're easily swayed. And, and we really, we don't do a good job of um, encouraging people to listen to new facts, hear new evidence, hear people's stories and, and change their minds. Um, and so I would love for someone who is just feeling kind of uncomfortable, feeling like they would like to ask some questions to read my book and see that it's okay to do those things. It, it's good. It's good to ask questions. Um, and I, I would also love for people who haven't experienced gun violence, haven't known anyone who's experienced gun violence to, to read my book, to read my story, um, to put a face to this issue. I think one of the things that's really complicated about gun violence, um, in America is that even though we have really sort of astronomical rates of gun violence compared to other, um, high-income developed countries, a lot of people don't know anyone who's been through it themselves. They've not really ever had to see it, um, personally. And so when they hear about it on the news when they hear about it as an issue, they think, well, yeah, that's sad. That's terrible. But you know, they, they just can't place it in their own lives. And so I think it really is valuable to listen to someone else's story, to see, um, really tangible examples of, of what it's doing to people, how it's affecting people. Um, and it, so if my story can be that for you, if my face can be the one you picture, when you think about gun violence, then, then, um, you know, I'm, I'm honored to do that and to, to help people really, really see it. Um, and you know, even people who don't agree with me and don't think they will, don't think they'll learn anything. I'm honored for them to read my book too, because, you know, it's really hard to read something that, you know, you're not going to agree with. Um, it's, it's hard to kind of open up yourself to that, even if you're maybe doing it like a little defensively, like we don't really like to do that. It's why echo chambers exist. So, um, you know, I'm truly honored by anyone who's, who's willing to, to give it a chance and, and read it. The book is When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. Our guest is Taylor Schumann. Follow her work at taylorschumann.com. Taylor, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Uh, what an incredibly prophetic call for us to stop believing that we can hold the Bible in one hand and hold a gun in the other. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.